Jonah 1, verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anna. Well, we're uh, in the season of Epiphany, which is uh, a season in the church calendar where we typically think about and celebrate the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he's the Savior of the nations, that he has come not just for people that look like us and think like us, but for the whole world. And so it's, it's traditionally a time where the church focuses on the mission of God as a theme And so what we have started last week and what we'll be doing for the next few weeks is we're going to be thinking about the mission of God through this lens of this old story, uh, old famous story, the book of Jonah. And we started last week and we're going to kind of tiptoe our way a little further in every single week as we go. Uh, But to set up what we're going to talk about this morning, I wanted to tell you all a story about when uh, Catherine and I were engaged. My wife, Catherine, this is 15 years or so ago now. Uh, she was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and I was living in Baton Rouge, and we were uh, gearing up to get married, and we were moving to Charlotte, so I-, I traveled over to Atlanta to load up all of her stuff, which was about to become our stuff, in a U-Haul truck to drive it up to Charlotte to drop it off in our apartment before we got married. And so we, you know, we load up the U-Haul, we're, we're heading up to Charlotte, Catherine's following behind me in her car. And I don't know if you've ever driven a U-Haul truck. Not, the, not a trailer, but a truck. It's the worst. They're, you know, they're clunky, they're big, they're slow. And it's fine. We're, we're kind of, you know, the, the little engine that could, making our way up to Charlotte. And we get about 20 minutes outside of the city. And the truck starts acting weird on the highway. I can tell something's off. Something's not working right. And it's the, my, my speed slowly kind of starts dropping. Cars are zipping around me, honking at me, yelling at me because I'm going too slow. And I kind of start inching over into the right lane. And my foot is pedaled to the metal. And I cannot get the thing to go. I can't get it to go. And so I I kind of eventually pull over into the shoulder. And the the poor U-Haul truck slows to a stop and then just dies. And Catherine pulls in behind me on the shoulder. We both get out of our cars. You know, cars zipping by us on on the highway. And I do... What any grown man would do is I go to the front of the truck and pop the hood. And when I do this, pop the hood, Catherine starts laughing at me because she knows I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't, I don't know anything about cars. I, was, I, don't, I knew I didn't, was, I didn't know what I was looking for either. I was just expecting something obvious, something overtly wrong, like a dead cat in the motor or something. That I, uh, then I would have known that's it. It's the cat. Uh, but there was no cat, there was no fire, there was no smoke. It was just a normal-looking engine, so I did, that was as far as I could have gone with my diagnosis. Didn't know how to troubleshoot it, so we kind of sat there scratching our heads, 
Long story short is uh, we, we eventually got back in our cars. I just tried to crank the engine and it started working. I, I, don't, I guess it overheated, I don't know. See previous point about not knowing anything about cars. So uh, the reason I tell you that is because you know when I was looking at under this hood at this all this complicated machinery, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I didn't understand how it worked. And I think that's an analogy for our own lives. Like when, whenever you look under the hood of your own life, whenever you you examine your own heart, if you're anything like me, it can just feel like this complicated mess of I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of me. I don't know why I'm the way that I am. I don't know why I feel what I feel. I don't know why there are certain things that I do that I don't want to do, but I keep doing them. And there's certain things that I want to do that I can't get myself to do. And so if you're anything like me, it's easy to look at your heart and just to be, it's, and just to feel puzzled, just to feel confused, just to feel discouraged that I don't understand the complicated machinery. Now, I, I tell you all this because even though this passage is short, what, four verses long, short, simple, I think it's actually very incisive and really um, it, it helps us understand how fallen human hearts operate. And I think it's really encouraging because it holds out hope for us. It holds out hope to show us how these hearts can be healed. So those are the two big ideas that I want to show you from this brief little passage this morning, is how human hearts operate, how they work, how human hearts work, and then how they're healed. Those are our two big ideas we're going to look at. We'll look at those one at a time. I think it makes the most sense to start with the first one. So let's start with the first one, then we'll look at the second one. Um, so how do human hearts work? That's the first big idea. Well, we'll look at the story. If you look at the story, it begins, or Jonah is told in verse 2, I want you to arise and go to Nineveh. And so what does Jonah do? God gave him this command. How does Jonah respond? Well, he arises, but he flees to a city called Tarshish. Now, if you're unfamiliar with, you know, Middle Eastern geography, this will kind of get lost on you, but Nineveh, from where... Um, Jonah was standing. Nineveh was 500 miles east. Tarshish was 2,500 miles west. He literally goes in the exact opposite direction that God tells him to go. This would be like God telling you, hey, I want you to go to Nashville, and you decide to go to California instead. This is, this is what Jonah's doing. Now, at this point in the story, we don't know why. As we get deeper into the story, we, it will become clear why Jonah is running. But at least on the surface, if you read between the lines, you can, you can at least surmise why Jonah is running at this point. Here's a couple reasons. First is that you could, you could see why Jonah would be afraid. Uh, I mentioned this last week that Nineveh is the capital city in this empire called Assyria. And Assyria had, had, was notorious. It just had a, had a reputation for being uh, unusually barbaric, unusually brutal. Just to give you a couple examples, they were known to, um, when they killed their enemies, they would decapitate their enemies and then force their surviving relatives to walk around the city with their, their, their deceased family members' heads on poles lifted up to humiliate their enemies and to traumatize the family. Uh, they, they would skin people alive and hang up the skin on, on the city walls as wallpaper. I mean, like, really, like, sinister stuff. This, and this is not, this, this is like an official, like, records from, you know, ancient Assyria. This is what they did. They would, they would burn children alive. 
So just imagine, Tim Keller put it like this. Tim Keller said, imagine uh, the brutality of ISIS with the, um, the, the beheadings and the sexual violence, but combined with the military power of the United States. That's Assyria. So if you're Jonah and God comes to you and says, hey, I want you to go to there, you'd be like, nope, uh, I'm out. I'm going go to go somewhere else. So Jonah runs because you could think, okay, he's, this is, uh, he's afraid. This is crazy. But maybe another reason is, is because uh, this, this mission, this whole point of uh, go there and preach to these people would have felt pointless to Jonah. Because you might remember that Assyria was uh, their bitter enemies of Israel. They hated Israel's God. And so Jonah has to be thinking, there's no way they're going to listen to me. If I roll in the middle of the town square and just start preaching, they're, they're, no one's going to listen. This, this would be like Kamala Harris speaking at like a Trump rally or uh, Trump speaking at like the Democratic convention. Like these are not spaces where they want to hear those speakers. And Jonah's thinking, okay, th this is not a space for me. No, one, no one's going to take me seriously. No one's going to listen to this. So if you get yourself into Jonah's mind, and again, his real reasons for running are going to become clearer later, and they're a lot uglier than this. But you can at least think on the surface, part of what's going on inside of his heart is, God, this makes no theological or practical sense whatsoever. I cannot see any good reason why you would want me to go there. This does not make any sense. This is completely irrational. So he takes matters into his own hands and he runs. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office, um, but if you're familiar with it, you'll know that there's a character on the show uh, named Oscar, and Oscar is kind of is this, is known as the smartest man in the office. He's and as a result, he's kind of like the know-it-all of the office. And there's one episode where all of his coworkers nickname him Actually. That's his nickname. They start calling him actually because uh, somebody will be telling a story and he will just insert himself into the story with leading with act actually and, you know, he'll, he'll, uh, in, he'll, he'll add facts to the story or he'll correct people's grammar. He's just like that guy. And so they call him actually because when you say actually, it's, it's a... It's a way of saying in not so many words that you are incorrect and I know better, actually. Jonah is having an actually moment here. God looks at him and says, hey, I want you to go to uh, Nineveh. And Jonah is like, well, actually, there's no point. Actually, it's really scary. And I don't think that you have my best interests in mind. And so Jonah can't see any good reason why God would do this. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he runs. He goes in the complete opposite direction. Now, here's what's fascinating. Because the book of Jonah uh, doesn't give you a dictionary definition of the word sin. You're not going to find any verse in the book of Jonah that says sin is any lack of conformity to the will of God. But you get a story you get a picture, you get a vivid picture, and what you see is, oh, sin is running your own way. Sin is going your own way. Sin is looking at God and saying, actually, I think I know what's best. 
Uh, John Stott has this quote that I included at the beginning of uh, your bulletin. He essentially says that sin is mankind substituting himself for God. You think, okay, if God is God, he's in charge, he's in control of the world, he's God, I'm not. But sin is when you say, I don't want you to be in charge. It's my life. I want to be in charge of my life, not you. I don't want you to be in control. I want to be in control. And so it's, it's assuming I know what's best. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a great little book on the book of Jonah called Under the Unpredictable Plant. And what he says in there is that this little story in Jonah chapter 1 is a reenactment of Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you're not familiar with what he's referring to, in Genesis chapter 3, that's the kind of the famous story of the Garden of Eden, where you have Adam and Eve, and God comes to them and says, hey, I want you can eat any tree you want in this whole garden, but do not eat that tree, anything but that. And Adam and Eve say, actually, we want to eat from that tree, and we think we need that tree in order to live, and we think that your rules are kind of too restrictive. And so they eat what are they doing? They're, they are, they're saying, I know what's best for my life. And if Jonah is this reenactment of that, you see the same thing played out with Jonah, that Jonah is looking at God and saying, I, I don't think you know what's best for my life. I do. I know what's best. So if you look all the way down to the bottom of a fallen human heart, that's what you find. It is this deeply held commitment to this belief that we know what's best, and God doesn't. We look at God through the eyes of suspicion, and we think, I don't trust that his ways are really going to lead to my flourishing. And so if I'm going to flourish in this life, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to gain control of my life. That's what is being reenacted here. And that move of saying, I'm just going to take control of my own life leads to terrible, painful consequences. As we're going to see in the next chapter, when Jonah runs, this is not neutral. This brings about all kinds of pain and devastation. And so when you and I do the same thing, when we look at God and his, God's, his word comes to us and tells us something that contradicts us, that we don't like, that we feel uncomfortable with, we have this instinct to say, actually, I'm not going to do that. God's word comes to us and says, okay, if you're a Christian... You should marry one. And we have this instinct that says, well, actually, that feels like that's limiting my options. That feels too, like, religious and radical. So we go our own way. Or God's word comes to us and says, you should give a tenth of all that you own away. And we look at God and say, actually, I don't know if you knew this, uh, but the cost of living is going way up, and prices are going up. You can't expect me to be generous in a pandemic. Or God's word comes to us and says, I, when, when, um, when evil comes your way, I don't want you to respond to it with evil. Do not return evil with evil. Instead, the very people that hurt you, I want you to bless them. And we say, actually, I don't think that works anymore. Maybe that worked back in like biblical times, but in today's age, that you're not going to get anywhere. If, you, if, you, if you're going to neutralize evil, you have to match it. And so we look at God and we say, actually, and we choose our own way because we think we, we know what is best. And it brings about 
devastation. This is why we have all the problems that we have. This is why you have the problems in your life, why I have the problems in my life, why the world is in the shape that it's in, because we've looked at our designer and said, we don't think you know how to run the universe. Uh, think about your car. Let's say that you uh, got bored one day and decided to read the owner's manual that's in the glove box of your car. Your internet's out. You have nothing else to do. Let's read that. And so you read it, and you come to the chapter where it says um, that you should only put unleaded gasoline in the gas tank. And let's say you read that, and you say, only gasoline? That is so restrictive. That's oppressive. It's my car. I can do whatever I want with it. And I want to put in pancake syrup. I think it's a lot cheaper. Uh, it's going to create much better smells of just the exhaust. Pancake syrup makes way more sense to me than this restrictive, oppressive, expensive thing that you're asking me to do. Now, here's the thing. You can do that. You can put pancake syrup in your car all day long. The problem is they're going to destroy your car. If you want your car to flourish, you have to privilege the voice of the designer over and against your voice, even if it doesn't make as much sense to you. Now, I know that's a ridiculous example, but we do this all the time. And if you think about your own life, if you want your life to actually flourish, you have to privilege the, the voice of your designer over and against yours so that even when his voice comes to you and contradicts you, you say, it doesn't make any sense. This is going to be too hard, but you know what you're doing because you're God. I heard Tim Keller put it, uh, put it like this. He said that, you know, in the, in the uh, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't wake up that morning and just say, hey, I have an idea. Let's be evil today and destroy the world. No, they woke up just like you and I do and say, I want to be happy. And I know that God says this, and I know that God says that, but I don't think that his ways are going to lead to my happiness. So I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And as a result, they ruin the world. When you and I wake up and we say, I just want to be happy and my happiness is going to prioritize whatever God says, that's the same root that's happening in Jonah. That's the same impulse of running. This is, the, this is at the bottom of every fallen human heart. We know what's best. In fact, if you trace through most, if not every decision you've ever made, this is what it's at the bottom of that. I know what's best. If, if, we, if we can use a, uh, a mechanical metaphor, it is, is to say this is how human hearts are coded. It's how fallen human hearts are coded, that we just assume God doesn't know what he's talking about and I know what's better. So that's how the human heart works. That's how the fallen human heart works. And uh, you hear that and you're like, well, good grief. It's already kind of a depressing day. This is even more depressing. Is there, we're just doomed to just keep screwing up our lives and ruining the world? Uh, no, there's hope here, like I said. So here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see how human hearts are healed. That's how hearts work, but how are they healed? Well, let's look at it quickly. Um, if you think about it, Jonah could have been maybe the shortest book of the Bible. It's already pretty short. It's only four chapters long, but I think it could have been four verses long because verse 2 reads... God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Verse 3 says, you know, Jonah has his actually moment. He says, oh, I'm going to go to Tarshish instead. Verse 4 could have read, 
And so God struck down Jonah and he died. The end. Just the shortest, saddest book in the Bible. But that's not what happens in verse 4. What does it say? Uh, God responds to this fugitive runaway prophet by doing this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The word hurl is the same word used for when a soldier hurls a spear, throwing this spear. So here's Jonah. He gets this command. He goes down to the port, buys a ticket, gets on a boat, goes out into the middle of the you know, open seas, and God throws this storm on the sea. It's a wind, and it's so chaotic, it's so aggressive, it's so out of control, it says that the ship is threatening to break up. It's like it's pulling apart at the seams. It's so wild and crazy. And you think, oh my goodness, why? Why did God throw, hurl a storm onto Jonah? And you think, well, uh, maybe God's trying to kill him. And you think, okay, that doesn't make any sense because as you get to the end of this chapter, you realize that Jonah survives. And you think, okay, God's a powerful person. He could kill him if he wanted to. He's, so why is he throwing the storm? He's not throwing the storm at Jonah to punish him. He's throwing the storm at Jonah to pursue him. This is not an act of punishment. It's an act of pursuit. Uh, maybe you notice this. Look, look at verse 3. Two different times it says that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Did you see that, that phrase there? I'll read it. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship, going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah isn't just disobeying God's word. He's trying to get away from God. That's a foolish thing. You can't get away from God. But he thinks, I, I, I've got to, he's going farther, farther, farther away from who God is. And God doesn't strike him dead. God doesn't just shrug his, you know, shoulders and say, well, good grief. I'm just going to let him go. I'll get somebody better. I'll find somebody else. God throws a storm after him. He chases him down to bring him back. In fact, the very next verse, I didn't, I didn't put it in your uh, bulletin, but verse 5 you find out that Jonah is asleep in the bottom of this boat, which is just this graphic picture of the spiritual state that Jonah is in. He's asleep, and so God sends this storm to wake him up, to snap him out of this insanity and bring him back to his senses and to bring him back into his very presence. And so here's what I want you to see. Here is a graphic picture of God chasing down his enemies, of people who are literally running in the opposite direction, and he's chasing down after them. Here's a man who is, who is, in one sense, he's thrown up his middle finger to God's face. and says, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do what I want to do. And God doesn't smite him. God doesn't uh, give him a lecture. God chases after him. God throws this storm to bring him back to himself. And so here's the point. You can never outrun the grace of God. You can try to run. You can abandon him. You can flee in the opposite direction, and he will not abandon you. 
He will keep pursuing, keep seeking, keep chasing. He will not let you go. This is that great song that we sing, oh, love that will not let me go. He keeps running and running after the very people like me and like you that are just dead set on running away from him. And in fact, you think, okay, well, that's, that's a nice little story from ancient times, but don't just take my word for it. It's, it's God has proven that he chases after rebels in real time and in real space and in real human history. Because centuries after the story, God sends his very son, like hurling a spear, he, he throws his very son into the world to chase after the very people that are running away from him. He chases after us in the person of Jesus to bring his enemies back into his very presence. And you think, okay, well, how does he do that? How does he do that? Well, think about it. At the bottom of every fallen human heart is this instinct that says, I know what's best. And that's why we have all the problems that we do. But there was one human heart that came along that did the opposite, that at the bottom of his heart said, God knows what is best and I will submit to it. Come hell or high water, even if it costs me my very life. God the Father looked at God the Son and said, I want to reconcile my enemies back to me. I want to save them. I want to reclaim them back into my very presence. But the only way to do that is for you to go and die for them. Because, because I'm, a, I'm a just God, I'm a holy God, I have to punish their rebellion. If I just shrug my shoulders out, if I just you know, rub it under the, uh, wipe it under the, uh, under the carpet... That would make me unjust. Somebody has to pay for their rebellion, but if we make them pay for it, we'll lose them forever. They'll be obliterated, and we don't get to be with them. They're so worth it to me. Somebody needs to pay for the penalty of their sin. You're going to do it. And so Jesus goes, and he doesn't say, well, actually, that sounds like a terrible plan. He says in the garden on the night before he was betrayed, he looks at God and says, not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes to the cross and he bears the full weight of our punishment in our place. He takes what you and I deserve for our runawayness, our rebellion, our running in the opposite direction. He takes it all on himself so that we can get the presence of God again. So that our crooked hearts, which are bent away from him, could be bent backwards towards him and be healed. Grace is what heals our hearts. In fact, here's, what, um, here's how John Stott concludes the rest of that quote. It's at the beginning of your bulletin. I'll just read it for you. It's amazing. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's what you see in the cross. You see in the cross a God that is willing to run to hell and back for the very people that have run away from him. Now you think, okay, that might be inspiring. That might move my heart a little bit, but... Okay, how, do, how does that really do anything for me? Well, think about it like this. Uh, I have an older friend, older kind of mentor named Jack, 
who, um, for the, really for the past 10 years, calls me, pursues me. He, he lives up in Virginia, and he just, you know, regularly calls me, checks in on me, asks me about my life, asks me about my marriage, about ministry. Just, you know, he's just very intentional, involved in my life. But he's also the kind of person who doesn't really mince words. He just kind of uh, is not afraid to confront or say things that are challenging to me. And whenever he confronts me about something, I know that he's right, but there's something in me that just hates it. It's like, I, I, I don't like being confronted. I don't like it when you say this, when you're, kind of, when you're pressing in on me. Like, I know you're right, but like, I don't like it. And so I was looking back through some of my old journals and one of my old journal entries, I just wrote in big letters, big block capital letters, trust Jack. That's all I wrote. That was my way of saying, okay, in those moments when he's, and he's confronting me, challenging me about something, I'm going to want to override what he says. I'm going I'm to not want to do it. But that was my way of arguing with me, of saying, you need to trust him. He, he, you know he's right. He, you know he's wiser than you. You know he loves you. He's, he's out for your good. He's not just being mean. He actually loves you, so trust him. But I needed to look at that to give myself confidence of something that's happened in the past. Yes, this, yes, he loves me, and I know that he's right. I had to look at that to argue with my own heart. The cross functions the same way. You look at the cross and argue with your own heart. Okay, even though God's word comes to me and it contradicts me and it says, okay, you shouldn't be sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. You should give sacrificially. You should get way more involved with caring for the poor in this city. And everything in you says, actually, I don't want to. I don't like that. that that's too hard. It's, I don't have enough time. I don't want to do it. Someone else can do it. And then you look at the cross and it shows you, oh my goodness, he loves me. He's for me. He's proven it. He's committed to my good. I can trust him. I can trust God. That's this message of the cross because I know in the bottom of my heart, he's committed to my good. He's committed to my well-being. How could he not? Look what he's done. Only the cross turns fugitives into followers. Only the cross turns his enemies into his very friends. But do you, have you looked at it? Have you personalized it? Have you taken in the grace that is available for you? Only that has the power to turn your heart into trusting him, into believing that maybe the ways of the designer might actually be good for me. I want to end with one final thought. This is a verse from a a classic song, Come Thou Fount. Here's what the verse says. Jesus sought me. When a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have sought us in your son Jesus. Though we wander from you, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. You tell us to go here, we want to go there. You tell us to um, submit in this way, and we assert ourselves in this way. Our hearts are set on going our own way. Father, I pray that you would overthrow our stubbornness. You would soften our calloused hearts. 
Uh, give us renewed confidence in your commitment to us. Help us to know that you are good and your ways are good and your commands are liberating. We assume they're restrictive. We assume they're oppressive. We assume that you, you want to make us miserable. Father, deprogram uh, what is so broken in the coding of our sinful hearts. Give us trust. Give us confidence as we taste and see that you are good. I pray all this in